The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show, a series that goes behind the scenes of finance, innovation, and banking to shine a light on the values-based banking movement. Now, values-based banking is also known as ethical or sustainable or regenerative banking. We've got real stories about real people and real passion and genuinely positive change in the banking sector. And I have to say at the outset, this isn't propaganda. This is positive stuff, and you should be aware of it because you can be part of it. In case you're new to the series, the show is about a new wave of banks, organizations, institutions, and activists rolling up their sleeves to create a positive, viable alternative to the current banking system. They're reassessing their purpose and redesigning their mission and operations around people, communities, and the real, as opposed to the speculative economy. So far, we've explored banking with a social conscience, lobbying and teaching for change, how research and governance is changing the banking sector, how investment banking can and should have a heart, and concepts like financial inclusion and building economic independence and how uh, cooperative banks can assist with that. We've also looked at the concept of impact and how banks can and should go beyond the balance sheet to both qualitatively and quantitatively assess the positive economic, social and environmental impact that they can support and sustain. We've looked at grassroots change in banking happening at an educational, community development and even Occupy level, how money and finance is put to good use through investment and bridging the gaps between ethical investment, growth capital and an equitable global economy. Uh, Last week, we also looked at systemic change in the sector through responsible finance and something called common good economics. And on this week's show, we'll hear from Brett Scott, who's an alternative finance explorer and author and campaigner, and Martijn Lampert, who's a research director of a company called Motive Action in the Netherlands. Both are experts and heretics of the global financial divide. But first, let's check in with David Cordland, who's on our show weekly. David's a strategic advisor and veteran expert of ethical and values-based banking. He's going to take us uh, to and through the latest news and headlines from the banking world and hopefully translate those headlines into something a little more meaningful for us. David, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. It's great to have you back. So I know you're off on vacation next week, so it's good to check in with you this week to see what's been happening in the news and how it relates to this positive movement in the banking sector. Sure. Um, I want to start. There was a conference about a week ago, the 1st of June, sponsored by Finance Watch. Finance Watch is a Brussels-based organization that really tries to prevent, present an alternative view for financial regulation uh, to the European Commission and European Parliament. 
and they had a, a conference on between a rock and a hard place, the future of traditional banking. And one of the keynote speakers was uh, Paul Tucker. Paul is former deputy governor of the Bank of England. And he, he talked about how the too big to fail is also impeding innovation. And what's interesting about that is he's really pointing out that uh, when we have too big to fail banks, we, we also have banks that also can stifle innovation. And uh, the speech isn't yet up uh, on their site yet, but if you go to Finance Watch, you can actually get his full speech. Um, but uh, he, he makes the, the key point that solving the too big to fail problem is a critical pre precondition to solving the productivity slump that exists in society. And I think that's really interesting how, and I think it reflects the fact that the regulators of the banking world quite often look across, not just at the, what they have to do directly for regulation, but also how uh, the structure and activities of the banking sector uh, impact the overall uh, world. And so I think a really interesting speech. I think it's well worth reading. Uh, I think if you go now to the website, you can actually uh, listen to it live in terms in, on tape. But I think it's also important for us to think about how the fact that we have so many large banks can also be an Im, uh, impediment to getting fintech to really help meet the long-term needs of society. It's it's interesting, actually, like the connections that you make. Um, were there any practical suggestions as to what can change and how it can be done? Um, I, I didn't have a chance to read the full speech because it's not, and I didn't have enough time to listen to it. I suspect he does have some practical suggestions. I just didn't have a chance to get to those this week, Linda. Sorry. Okay, no problem. So definitely, let's just Google it and see what's there. I mean, that's the thing I found most interesting, you know, with the different guests on the show is it's a question I always ask, you know, what specifically does this mean or what are you doing to implement change? And I think it's always good to get to that point because we can talk around these subjects from a theoretical or macro point of view, but it's really nice to get the, the hands-on examples and, and the suggestions that people have around change. So um, okay, great. What and that's actually, why, actually, I would encourage people to go financewatch.org, finance-watch.org. That's their website. It, they consistently bring out very good analyses. So it's, it's, an, it's a, a website well worth watching in general as they look at uh, the issues. And they have a nice uh, understanding of the financial system without being uh, bought into it and taking everything that the big banks say as gospel. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Brilliant, David. Thanks for that suggestion. Um, anything else catch your eye over the last week? Well, then I think it was, it's always good to, to jump to, to the other big market, the U.S., uh, and there are two interesting articles out of the U.S. Uh, one is a fairly depressing article that came out uh, uh, yesterday or on the 7th of June, and the Republican chair of the House Financial Services Committee, a fairly important role, is... Uh, bringing out a proposal that essentially will, uh, as he claims, uh, revamp Dodd-Frank, but frankly, guts it. And uh, I think that's, it, it's as if we haven't learned anything. Dodd-Frank may not be perfect, but a lot of the things which uh, are included in this proposal uh, from Representative Jeb Hart and Sarling from Texas really takes us really, really backwards. So it includes such things as shutting down the... Uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and removing most of its policies, powers. And that's a, uh, a new bureau created under Dodd-Frank that really looks out, of the out for the interests of consumers. And uh, essentially what they're trying to do is just 
get rid of it totally. They, they pretend they're not getting rid of it, but in pr- principle, that's what would happen. And as I think you may recall, a couple of weeks ago, I noted how this, this, uh, this bureau was coming out with consumer protection on payday lending and some other forms of lending. And clearly that's hitting uh, people where it hurts and they're lobbying hard to, to, to kill it. Um, so I think that's fairly important. The other thing, two other uh, parts of the plan would repeal the Volcker rule, which uh, prevents banks from making risky bets with their own money. And I think it's a misnomer to call it their own money. Their own money is money entrusted to them by depositors, insured by the, the, the insurance guarantee funds. So although it is on the balance sheet of the banks, it's really protected and supported by a lot of government support. So to say there uh, allows them to stop making risky bets with their own money isn't really true. It stops them from making risky bets with other people's money for which they get a subsidy in terms of what they pay for it. So that's, that's another big change. And I think the Volcker rule people saw as a really good step forward, named after Paul Volcker, former chair of the Federal Reserve, very wise man. And also the man who was quoted as saying the only financial in- innovation from banking that he's seen that has any value is the, auto- uh, is, is the cash machine, and the rest is much less valuable. And the second thing they've done is they've talked about uh, uh, eliminating the power to designate non-banks as systemically important. And systemically important is a crucial designation that identifies institutions who, if they fail, could bring down the whole system. And if you, we, we go back to 2008, that is what actually happened uh, with the AIG group. And, and so the question is, shouldn't uh, the Stability Council have the ability to look at the financial system and say, wait a minute, here's an entity, it's active in the financial markets, and if it fails, we will have a big problem. Uh, so, again, all their plans to move, move away from uh, better controls over the financial system, and it, it gives me quite some pause. So, a very interesting uh, initiative and one that uh, could be quite dangerous. And how can changes like this happen? I mean, is, is this a case of, of big business or big banks simply lobbying and lobbying hard and, and stuff gets changed in their favor? Like, how does that happen? I, I think I think you've put your finger on it. I think one should never underestimate the amount of money involved, and that money uh, makes its ways into the financial system, into the into the uh, political system, and uh, it, it quite often it is couched, oh, this is a way of uh, reducing regulation on small banks and community banks. But when you actually look through to the substance, it's really ending up finding ways to make it easier for the large banks. So uh, I, I think it's a direct consequence of the amount of money, particularly that uh, works its way through the American political system, which uh, is, is allowed by a Supreme Court ruling, Citizens United. But I think it's had quite negative consequences in terms of letting big money, corporate money, speak uh, uh, in a way that uh, is not healthy. Uh, so I think it, it is an example of uh, what some people would call indirect corruption. Wow, that's shocking. So I guess, I mean, uh, uh, what can people do about it? I mean, the first step is, number one, to be aware of it, and the second, second step is to, to perhaps get active and get vocal. You know, there's, you, you can be amazed what can happen, you know, through uh, some kind of movement on social media where people are, are just getting vocal on a particular issue, and then it suddenly can't be ignored anymore. So 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would highly recommend people vote, uh, vocal and vote. If if your representative thinks that removing Dodd Frank is a good thing, and you're against that, uh, go vote otherwise. So I I think uh, vocal is one thing, but getting out and voting is a is also quite helpful. I like it too, and it's interesting actually. You, you were talking about voting, and I saw saw an interesting article on um, the economic consequences of of a Donald Trump will, win in in the U.S. and how it could be severe. It's like severe is like an under total underestimate, you know, of of what could potentially happen. But you never you never know. Maybe if people vote for Donald Trump, then it becomes the tipping point for some kind of positive change because it just the system just won't won't be able to. Oh God, I don't know what to say. The system won't be able to sustain that kind of um, political change. I think it's yeah, shocking. What else is yeah. happening in the news, David? And then the last thing I wanted to focus on. Uh, I only have three this week. Last week I had a few too many. We got cut off a bit at the end. Had to rush. But uh, there was a very uh, large article in the Financial Times about uh, Wells Fargo and how it's tweaking its retail operation to lift its revenues. And um, what's interesting is when you really read into the article, um, you see uh, some elements of the Wells Fargo business model, which I think is a, is a good business model. Wells Fargo is very much focused on the real economy, very much focused on serving needs of people in the communities. But one of their, their big issues is getting uh, individuals to buy more products from them. So they're very proud of what's called the cross-sell ratio. So if you have a savings account with them. You also have your checking account, your current account. You have long-term investments. You have a mortgage. You may have a car loan and so forth. And for Wells Fargo, their cross-sell ratio, which is something they publish, is very, very critical. What uh, you find, however, when you get into the details is that there's enormous pressure on their sales forces, sales force people to up that cross-sell ratio. And and uh, sometimes because of that pressure on the salespeople whose whose income, whose whose salary, whose uh, whose bonus, if they get one, whose performance review is based upon how they do on this, um, they sometimes are pressured, and they don't always necessarily provide uh, the best advice to an individual when they should buy another product. And I, I think what makes that interesting is it, it shows that how the 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 Systems within banks that incent individuals who do the work can have some really negative consequences for clients. And, and so the, the, the people are being judged on how do they do with the cross-sell ratio with their portfolio of clients, not on are they helping their clients increase their wealth and their well-being. And I think that is, is indicative of a, uh, a fundamental pro- problem across the banking system, which is the incentive systems tend to be focused on, on uh, areas which only benefit the bank and not necessarily the client. And, and so I think that raises the issue is how can banks create incentive systems um, to, to encourage behavior that gets the people dealing with the client, the people in the coal phase uh, uh, with the client, to really find the best solution for that client, which may not be selling another product. It may actually be getting them out of a product that's not fit for them. So I think that's a really good article because it helps highlight some of the fundamental problems in the banking system as it presently works. Yeah, it's a great insight, actually. You know, it's something we've also discussed on the show with some um, CEOs who are running values-based banks. 
and they often chat about the culture in the organization and, and how the culture is so critical to doing this type of banking and making it work from a from a people-centered perspective. And incentives and performance is obviously part of that mix. So they're already working on solutions as to how how to re-incentivize or redesign incentivization programs so they do exactly what you're suggesting, that they really serve the best interests of the customers. Because if you do that, then you serve the best interests of them over the long term. You help build their their economic independence and their wealth in the long term, and then you help build the community. David, it's been great having you on the show. I know next week you're taking a break, so uh, you're going to join us again for the last show in the series in two weeks' time. Thanks for sharing your insights. Uh, Folks, come back to us after the break. We are going to chat with Brett Scott, an alternative finance explorer, author, and campaigner. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to Building Banking on Values. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Values show. We were just speaking with David Cordland, who's a strategic advisor in the values-based banking sector, and he was giving us the lowdown of what's happening in the, the news headlines. Uh, so we were talking about some interesting things, you know, how, how conventional banking is between a rock and a hard place, looking at the future of traditional banking uh, changes, well, drastic changes and negative changes in consumer protection in the states and, and looking at systems that support uh, systemically important banks and how important that is. So on the show now, we're going to meet with Brett Scott, who's an alternative finance explorer, author, and campaigner. So it's a perfect segment to come into. Brett gets involved in financial campaign- campaigning and alternative finance by blending experience in environmental and social movements, startup business development, derivatives, blues music, and economic anthropology. He's done work on hedge funds, commodity markets, economic aspects of climate change, and socially responsible banking. Brett wrote The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, which we're going to talk about on the show, and he's a fellow of the Finance Innovation Lab. Um, Back in the day, Brett was also an academic, and since 2006 and 2007, Um, He was a Magdalene Mandela Scholar at Cambridge University, working on issues related to economic crime, 
environmental sustainability, geopolitics and economic philosophy in international development. Wow, Brett, um, is there anything that you haven't done? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's actually kind of a, that's kind of an, an old biography. So I've, I've done, I've got a fair a, a few new strands since then. <laughs> I see as well, Brett. Like you've also written for the Guardian, Wired, New Scientist, and uh, CNN.com. So this this uh, space is obviously something that you're pretty involved in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, actually, what I, what I try to do a lot of the time is to. Uh, get involved in a variety of different types of initiatives as a way to see the connections between them. So that's partially why I end up doing so many um, kind of weird different projects, um, because I like to try to get a sort of systemic view of how they're similar to each other or how they're different to each other. Yeah, and I have to say, I really like that approach because that's what we've learned through the show. Like, we have a, a wide variety of guests, you know, both those working in banking, finance, and investment, but those outside of, on the periphery of, of what can change the banking sector. And, and that's what I found most interesting is that the, it, this is a complex subject, and to work on systemic change, you, it, it's best to have a variety of different experts in a variety of different fields to figure out what can actually and what does work. Uh, Brett, it, tell me about um, being an alternative finance explorer. I really like the concept of it, and I'd like you to share, you know, what that actually is and what you've done uh, in the last few years. Sure, yeah, the um, explorer concept is, I mean, I don't know, I, I kind of loosely call myself that, I don't um, yeah, it's basically the idea that I will uh, travel different routes around different types of initiatives and see what I can find. Um, in terms of like my actual background, I've got this uh, anthropological type of background. So um, anthropology often involves immersing yourself in different types of communities to try and uncover what's going on. Um, so I'm always used to be uh, doing anthropological style of work. Um, my original sort of exploration, as it were, um, took the form of me actually working in the financial sector for two years um, in the world of derivatives, so uh, these large-scale bets that big investment banks and investors uh, get involved in. Um, but since uh, I've spent two years doing that, and then since that, I've um, moved into this realm of how do you, um, I guess, blend together stuff around the uh, mainstream finance with uh, social and ecological alternatives. Um, and that's sort of taken two forks, which is on the one hand, I've worked on financial campaigns, uh, so actually uh, campaigns that target the power of the existing banking sector and financial sector. So, for example, I've worked on stuff around offshore tax havens, um, commodity speculation, all these types of uh, kind of almost policy type campaigns. And then on the other fork, I try to work on stuff around alternative finance. Um, and alternative finance is a broad term, but it basically means um, any form of finance that's not um, in the mainstream, per se. Um, and um, that's taken you know, me working on alternative currency systems. I was actually just in Serbia uh, last week working on a local currency in Belgrade. Um, so that's an example of something I get up to. Um, but also getting involved in the alternative banking scene, so I've actually um, become an associate of the Institute uh, for Social Banking, which is a German institution that's training around social banking. Um, 
Yeah, I get that try to explain many of these, these things. And actually, recently I've also got involved in this world of um, sort of financial visualization. So working with artists um, on how do you actually um, help people to sort of see the financial sector, as it were, or to sort of educate people around finance. So, um, yeah, many different things. So it's it's interesting. I mean, definitely, I, I like the approach of anthropology and how it's almost a, an investigation and exploration of of possibilities and what else is happening out there. Can you explain to me how the worlds of financial campaigning, alternative finance, environmental and social movements are aligning to to change the banking sector? Can you give us any specific examples? How they're aligning to change. Um, well, I think uh, the, uh, I guess the world of what's called system change, which is quite a broad term, um, the system change approach is, I guess, thinking about how do you actually align all these different types of movements. So, for example, in the financial campaigning world, you have environmentally focused um, groups, so doing, you know, divestment groups, for example, you have then um, so the world is uh, more sort of social justice type focused things, looking at you know financial inclusion, um, and so you, you have all these different like types of organisations, and, and I guess it's a work in progress of how you get them all to work off the same page. Um, and actually, you were speaking with Diego, I think, in the economy for the common good, and actually one of the things the economy for the common good is trying to do is precisely that, is to say. Okay, we're all working towards some kind of um, vaguely coherent goal, but we just need to find ways to actually um, interface with each other properly. Um, in, the, in the example of the Finance Innovation Lab, which is one group that I work with, or I'm, I'm a fellow of, a large part of what they've been trying to do is to develop a sense of a movement around alternative finance. So beyond the sort of narrow interest groups to try to get everyone to work on the same page. And literally how that actually takes place is um, getting everyone together for drinks, having events, um, trying to sort of uh, create synergies between different movements. So actually a lot of the, a lot of my a lot of my kind of connections in the alternative finance will come through that process of um, the finance innovation lab originally. Um but I would still say that actually at a systemic level, there still is no real um, coherent global alternative finance movement. Um, so that's, I guess we're still working on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's where the potential, that's where the gap is and that's where the potential is. And I've often said it on the show, you know, I'm amazed even at the you know, some of the guests. Well, actually, all of the guests that come on the show, I'm always inspired by what they're doing and the very different approaches that they're taking. And I always end up asking that question, well, how can we get all of these people together in the same room? Because that's where the magic happens. So I guess this show is one way of at least trying to connect the people and trying to raise general awareness. But it would be wonderful if, if in some way we could all work together to, to change the system. And the first step, as you say, is sometimes just getting together for for a drink and yeah. <laughs> this is an issue that's that, um, been around social movements for a very long time. Beyond just the financial campaigns, um, there's always this issue of 
on the one hand, you have to run a coherent um, campaign by yourself with a small group of people, and that's the most effective way to do it often. Um, but often your campaign won't be effective unless you're aware of what other people are doing, and you can be working at cross purposes. Um, and I guess so this is, so there's a, there is a rich tradition of um, uh, people thinking about how to do it. Um, but I think actually financial campaigning or alternative finance is a fairly new field, actually. So I think um, in the next... Um, I, I, I'm kind of looking forward to see what happens in the future with it. Because I still, you know, certainly, for example, in the UK, where I'm based, it's still a fairly new idea that people, you know, think that they can build their own financial alternatives or engage in campaigns and banks. Um, so it's growing. Absolutely, uh, and and it's interesting. I mean, you're, everything that you've spoken about is, is 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 inspiring. And what I also find inspiring is even the title of of what you've written, the Heretics Guide to Global Finance: Hacking the Future of Money. Will you introduce us to that concept by by telling us what's wrong with the banking system and what are the solutions? Uh, um, Where do you start? <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, uh, so in terms of what's wrong with the banking system, um, so bear in mind the Heritage Guide to Global Finance looks at more than just the banking system, but in terms of the banking system, um, I guess you could probably identify a handful of particular issues. Um, on the one hand, you have the issue of unsustainability. So a lot of banking is based on or predicated upon some form of ecological destruction or at least not being particularly aware of it. There's a whole um, a, a range of campaigns that try to target banks on the um, what they invest in in terms of, for example, um, right now, there's actually, especially in Europe, there's a lot of this stuff being pushed on around stopping banks investing in coal projects. So yeah. that will be, be quite targeted at sort of the ecological sustainability element of the banking sector. Then there's a whole sort of section around the inequality that the banking sector represents. Um, so if you want to imagine the banking sector, you have, on the one hand, a small group of highly politically organized um, institutions that have an enormous amount of power, um, as the banks themselves. Um, and then you often have this sort of diffuse, um, quite passive group of people, general society, that uses them in a very kind of passive way. Um, and as a result, you have quite sort of a toxic culture developing with these sort of... Um, um, essentially, banks who don't work in the public interest, but they work to often, um, at least, to enrich people who already have money. Um, it's lots of kind of inequality type of critiques that you find emerging. But then there's also what all the regulators are concerned about is stuff like the opaque nature and complex nature of the system. So a lot of regulators don't really care so much about the ecological destruction and social inequality. They mostly care about will the banking sector disrupt the normal economy. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of the debate there. Go on about, you know, the uh, capital ratios and all that kind of stuff. Um, related to that is this idea of do the banks actually support productive activity in the economy? So, for example, in the UK, I mean, most of the banks, what they actually are lending to is houses that have already been built. Um, so, I mean, something like 60% of the credit that they extend goes into the, the mortgage market. Um, and it's questionable whether this is particularly productive activity. Um, but actually, there's a sort of a, an area that I am quite interested in, which doesn't really get spoken about much, which is just the sheer alienating nature of the banking sector. The fact that even if it was 
Um, you solve all those other problems. You have the sense that people have no idea how it works. It's just this kind of alien thing that exists in society. Um, and, yeah, I guess these are the different problems you can try to tackle, and different campaigns try to do that. Um, yeah, I like I like what you're saying too about um you know productive activity. We've often spoken about it on the show too. It's it's about um what we call or what I've heard it called is the real economy versus the speculative economy, and the role banks have can play a very practical role in supporting the real economy. So it's what are people's needs, what are the community's needs, what are local organisations' needs, and designing products, services, solutions, and supports around that, and also. Um, productive activity, banks can switch so that what they do is, is more mission-based and where they put their money, or should I say where they put their customers' money, can actually be directed more, much more specifically and strategically at creating social, economic, and environmental impact. You spoke yeah. in your book, you speak about um, a DIY toolkit to help people undertake their own adventures in guerrilla finance. Can you give us some examples of that? Um, well, yeah, the book was actually, I guess its main purpose was um, imagine a person in society who doesn't feel and understand very much about finance and doesn't feel they have any real power to do anything about it. So quite possibly as, as an individual almost. Um, and the most of the approach I was taking was these sort of three sections, exploring, jamming, and building. Um, exploring was the first section of the book. It was basically trying to orientate somebody to how the existing financial system works um, and actually... Um, the them to sort of realize that it isn't actually as, as uh, complex a structure as you imagine, and a lot of the imagined complexity is, is sort of, um, it's not real. Um, and actually, a lot of people within the financial sector themselves um, are, are frequently sort of masquerading or pretending that they know a lot more than they actually do. Um, and so we're trying to get a person to realize that actually there's many things that you do have a legitimate uh, voice in sort of exploring and thinking about finance. The second section was around what's called jamming, which was, you know, you can get involved in campaigns which try to mess with the workings of the existing financial sector. So examples of that included um, shareholder activism. So, you know, the utilization of financial instruments like shares to have a, have a voice in companies. Um, but we also went to quite weird stuff like, you know, starting up your own activist hedge funds. Um, so I actually work with an activist hedge fund um, based out in the U.S. called uh, Robinhood. Um uh, asset management, and there, you know, a group of artists and activists who started their own hedge fund as a way to sort of uh, critique the financial sector. Um, and then, you know, so there's so those types of campaigns like that. And then uh, the sort of third section was building, which is saying, okay, so you, on the one hand, you can try and jam with the existing uh, workings of the financial system, but you can also start trying, you know, make creative alternatives. And that was split into, you know, alternative money systems. Um, alternative financial instruments and alternative um, institutions, um, all of which you can do as a serious type of campaign or as a quite sort of fun type of thing. You know, there's some kind of financial experiments which are, don't require you to have to, you know, spend years of your life. For example, I've got a friend, Eli, who constructed his own alternative currency called Punk Money um, on Twitter. Um, and, you know, these type of things you can do which, are, which help you to learn about the financial system and to get more confident. Brett, that was wonderful. Listen, thanks so much. I mean, folks, I definitely recommend you check out Brett's book and also his blog. He's some 
very humorous and as an Irish person I'm, I can be quite sarcastic so I like I like his, his sarcasm in his writing but he takes a very practical approach to making some um, some real suggestions about what you can do with your own money and and the system and how, how you can make change so definitely check out the book and the toolkit and his approach to exploring jamming and building the financial system Brett it's been great having you on the show thank you very much uh, folks, okay. come back after the break. We're going to meet with Martin Lampert from Motive Action. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to Building Banking on Values. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. In the last segment, we met with Brett Scott, who's an alternative finance explorer, author, and campaigner. And we had such an interesting conversation about how anthropology can help change the finance and the banking system. We spoke about how his involvement in financial campaigns uh, with the Institute of Social Banking Finance Innovation Lab, what's wrong with the system, and, and how... People can take very practical steps and they're taking very practical steps to to understand and watch and place their money in into things that create economic, social and environmental change, but also to help banks focus more on what we call productive activity, which is investing in the real economy. On the show now, we're going to meet with Martin Lampert, who's a research director of Motive Action, a company in the Netherlands. Uh, Martin is an expert on the social rich and the values-based economic divide. Martin leads the Glocalities, Values and Trends Research Program, which covers 24 countries, 75% of the world economy, and um, based on interviews with more than 100,000 respondents. Lampert founded the Mentality Research Program in Values and Lifestyle in the Netherlands. Um, he was elected Agency Researcher of the Year in 2012. 
And Martijn acts really as a strategic advisor to international clients in the commercial, NGO and public sectors. He lectures and has published two books. Martijn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on. I mean, it's so interesting to speak with a researcher um, and, and to also understand how research can create change from, from a banking perspective, but also from a business perspective and from a societal perspective. Before we get into that, can you tell me a bit about you, your career, and, and how you're a change maker? Yeah, well, I studied uh, actually leisure studies in, uh, in Tilburg because um, I started studying economy, but then I thought, well, I'm missing something. I miss the other side of life, actually. Uh, that, um, and that's what I found. It's not a disciplinary study, which got me really into studying values, uh, consumer motivations, uh, trends that, of course, affect the real economy and also have uh, a lot of economic consequences. So that got me into the study of values. And since then, I've been doing that, uh, that gladly and uh, I'm learning every day. That's fantastic. And it's so interesting you're, you talk about that journey because that's what I often find with guests on the show. You know, they're in, in some senses, they're, you know, hardcore bankers or investors, but the journey they've taken into banking has always been uh, an interesting one. And they've come back into the, the banking or to serve the values-based um, approach to, to business and economy because of what they've learned along the way. So it's interesting you share, and thanks very much. And it's very interesting as well, you specialize in, in the topic of values. Um, I want you to tell me about mode of action, you know, your customers, your focus areas, and how research can play a leading role in changing society, business, and banking. Yeah, but basically we depart from the, the principle that um, if you don't understand people, you don't understand business. Uh, you don't understand how you can really induce change and connect and resonate with people on a deeper level because that's what it's about. Uh, people are, are, are looking for a deeper meaning in their own lives, but also in the, the organizations they work for and uh, you know, well, the organizations they, they buy products from. So in the marketplace, um, yeah, we research um, the driving motives of people in their daily lives. And some people are more uh, achievement-oriented. Other people are, on average, more uh, into self-development, self-actualization in, in a more personal sense. Other people are more family-motivated. And you can align with these motives if you, for example, want to, um, well, promote more sustainable practices because you can be sustainable for reasons of the future of your family. Or you can be sustainable for wanting to reach specific business goals in an ethical way. Um, and that's what we advise um, a lot of NGOs, global NGOs, but also multinationals and governments in. If you connect with people on a deep, deeper level, you can build a longer lasting and sustainable relationship. And that improves quality of life around the globe. Yeah, it's kind of really a, a, a win-win situation, and I've heard it described from a business perspective as, as looking at business, you know, with a, as the lens of a triple bottom line. So, you know, being able to create a business 
that creates positive impact but is profitable in itself too. So it's creating impact and positive change on an economic, social and environmental level. And I find it interesting too. I mean, the concepts that you're speaking about aren't new. We've heard them before on the show and certainly from a banking perspective that people are becoming more aware where people choose to put their money is is making um, uh, more, it's reaching more importance for people because people really want to to align themselves and uh, in things that actually will positively impact them and their community. So it's interesting, the work that you do. In, in terms of um, the localities, can you tell me a bit more about localities and what it is? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, we, we have developed multiple values-based uh, tools. Uh, we, we show people values cards with, with, with visuals just to understand what they find appealing, what drives them. But we also work with a values-based segmentation uh, with statements like, for example, my work is my life, or uh, I think that the gay couples should be able to uh, adopt children, uh, so, so things that are values related, but also very practical in the daily life. And then you can understand uh, population segments across the globe and how these differ. Uh, for example, in, in Europe and also in the U.S., there is a, a large segment leading in society that we call the creatives, and they cherish post-materialist uh, values um, and are into self-actualization. And they're quite leading in the sustainability debate. But if we look at emerging economies, like, for example, China, like uh, uh, Brazil, India, uh, the frontrunners over there are much more achievement-oriented and uh, also have some more conservative views on life and, for example, want to promote uh, sustainable practices. But then from a religious or even uh, a perspective which relates to taking care of the grounds of your ancestors. So they come from a whole different uh, uh, playing field and want to promote similar causes. And that's interesting if you uh, really want to make a difference and induce change towards more sustainable banking. You have to align um, with the front runners in all those countries. Absolutely, and it's it's, it's quite um, it's quite revealing, really. I mean, it's almost as though you're 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 recategorizing people from a values perspective, and you're looking at these emerging groups and what's important to them and where there are similarities and differences. And this is something that both business and banking can learn from. Your work with Motive Action and Glocalities has, has led you to concepts like the social rich and the values-based economic divide. Can you, can you tell us about them and what you're uncovering? Yeah, we, we published a, a report um, on the global rich in which we uh, took a deep dive uh, into the, the, the 5% of top earners from our first uh, global survey. And um, yeah, and what we found out is that there's not only a divide uh, between the, the, the rich and the rest of society and the poorer parts of society, but there is also a divide within the rich, and this is a values-based divide. Um, and 
on the one hand, we discern a group of, of social rich people who say that um, the differences between higher and lower incomes should be smaller. So had they, they have a plea for that. And we see that also in their behaviors and their uh, banking preferences. And for example, those are the people who support ethical banking for a lot, but also are promoting uh, practices like like crowdfunding, peer-to-peer fines. They're really innovative. Um, and, well, both segments are, are rich, belong to the top 5%. And if you look at the influence they have on uh, strategies in, in companies and in government, it's much higher because they are influential. They are in fact, decision makers, than other segments from the population. And those social rich people are, are caring also about reaching out and getting um, larger segments in the population involved for uh, change for the better. On the other hand, we have also discerned a group of self-oriented rich that don't uh, think that the differences in incomes between a higher and lower income should be smaller. In fact, they oppose that. And those people are much more in favor of the system as it is. And we see that the trust in banks, traditional banks, for example, but also in governments, is higher among um, among this group. So here you see that, and I'm sketching already the debate in which uh, I think values-based banking is in the midst of of that. Um, and what we learned from this uh, survey is that the people who are at the social rich um, have a lot of change-making characteristics that also Malcolm Gladwell describes in his book, uh, The Tipping Point. So they are connectors, they are mavens with the knowledge of how things can change and what are new, new perspectives on banking. And also the, the, the people who can make others enthusiastic. So I think for the the values-based banking movement, this is a huge opportunity of reaching out to those people in in all countries like China, Brazil, South Africa, you name it, in Europe as well, um, to try and reach out to those people and get them involved and serve their needs to the best. Um, Yeah, that's um, one of the findings of our survey, which, by the way, can be downloaded at www.glocalities.com. The program is called the Glocalities, and um, it's the report on the rich divide, self-oriented rich and social rich, the two faces of a decisive uh, segment. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I find it, I do find it kind of inspirational that number one, like a mainstream research company is actually looking at the concept of values and also tracking the trends and, and highlighting that, that there's, there are these divides in society and also these opportunities for, for not-for-profits, for businesses and for banks to help understand the potential appetite there for, for shifting their mission to create, a, you know, a triple bottom line type of impact that if there's appetite there, I think more organizations will shift to do more of this work because there's almost a business case for them. So it's great that you share that. And thanks also for sharing um, where people can find the report. I really recommend if you're interested in this space or if you're a business looking at corporate social responsibility or a bank looking to create more impact, I recommend you check it out. Very quickly, we've only got two more minutes to go. 
your predictions about challenges and opportunities based on the research that you've done. Could you could you give us? Um, let's focus on the opportunities from a banking perspective. Yeah. What are the what's one single opportunity? You know, uh, based on your research. Yeah, yeah. We we did some some research which has not been published also, but I, which I wanted to share with you because there is a lot of support for values-based banking. For example, huh, a statement like ethics and morality should play a, an important role in the training of professionals in the financial sector. Seventy percent of the world population think that is the case. So you have a lot of support in uh, that way of thinking. Uh, like bankers should not only base their financing decisions on economic and legal expertise, but also on social and societal expertise. Also, uh, almost two-thirds of people across the globe um, uh, value that, uh, agree to that. So I think there's a huge opportunity for creating more diversity within the financial sector um, and inducing change. Um, but it has to get known that there are alternatives and that, that it is possible to have values-based banking in the end that everyone profits from and the planet can uh, take it, uh, its ambitions to the next level. Um, yeah, so I, I am quite uh, positive about the potential of connecting with the masses uh, in this respect. That's great, Martin. I mean, what a lovely way to to end this show, you know, on such a positive note that there is. You're you're saying from a research perspective, there's definitely a growing appetite there from from a societal point of view to to um, want to invest more in positive impact and also to to making suggestions about how banks can make change and and making changes is. Uh, one way of doing that is through educating professionals in the banking sector. And a great segue to remind listeners, too, that MIT are involved in this space with the Global Alliance for Banking on Values because they've launched the first massive open online course on, on this whole concept called Just Money, and it's available free for anybody to, to access. So a, a great segue. Let me, let me close out the show. Uh, very quickly, let's look at social media and what's trending on banking on values. We have a Cinnaboyne. Uh, credit Union showing Banking of Values in Action with their support local and social impact tour. We have Jeff Boonstra from uh, CEMS, the Global Alliance in Management Education, and Assad University in Spain, who are integrating the concept of values-based banking into their courses. And shout out to the likes of Bank Australia, GLS in Germany, Beneficial State Bank in the USA, Capital Institute, and Triodos, who are also promoting the show Next week, tune in. It's our second last show in this series. You're going to meet with Jean-Louis Bancel from Credit Cooperative in France, Vince Siciliano from New Resource Bank in the USA, and Whitney Thomas from Triodos UK, all of whom are leading change in social solidarity investment and banking from Europe to the USA. Until next time, tweet me at Catalyst Warrior, tweet the show at Voice AM Business, and don't forget to share the show and spread the word because we have the power to build banking on values. Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 